The Lord does battle for you. You may experience difficulty, but never defeat. Or does battle for you. You may experience difficulty, but never defeat. With that opening word, we are here at Psalm 91, and this is the start of a series on the most famous psalms, right? So we've been going through and have identified uh, some different ones, uh, Psalm 1 and Psalm 23 and all the, all the different ones, 46 and, and 51 and 88. And today we arrive at Psalm 91. Now, it's interesting with Psalm 91 because different psalms are known for different things. And Psalm 91 is a psalm that talks about God being the shelter of the Most High. We, we abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And it's a psalm about God providing for, uh, a fortress and a refuge for us. And so because of that, over time, it has become the favorite of a lot of people when they're in moments of distress or when calamity has come into their lives or there's battle, whatever it happens to be. So all these things are going on. Therefore, it's gained this reputation as this psalm of protection and, and refuge and strength for us when we're feeling very uncertain about all the things that come at us. And uh, one of the names that Psalm 91 has been called is uh, the soldier's psalm. And so through time, there's stories of soldiers actually printing out the words to Psalm 91 as a psalm of protection and putting it somewhere in their uniform, maybe in a pocket. Uh, even more recently, you hear stories about NATO soldiers doing so. And also, uh, some people will take the words in that small version as possible, roll them up, put it in a locket, because a tradition has emerged that, that this psalm is so powerful that it might be able to use to be ward off evil around us. And so our questions this morning are really twofold, and we're just going to jump right into it. And the first is, what kind of protection are we talking about when it comes to the promises of Psalm 91? And second, when calamity does in fact come into our lives, what are we to make of Psalm 91 when these promises and this talk of protection seems hollow or shallow based on what we are experiencing? Okay, so we're going to open up to Psalm 91. I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, beginning at verse 1, and uh, we should make a note about who wrote it. Well, the psalm is anonymous, and so as you go through the psalms, you'll recall that some are by David or the sons of Korah, right? Uh, this psalm is technically anonymous, um, but there is a train of thought, and I, I, I tend to go along with this one. Some scholars think that if you look back at Psalm 90, Psalm 90 is a prayer of Moses, the man of God. And some think that, well, Psalm 91 might also be... Um, by Moses, because it uses similar phrases and sim similar imagery. Not only that, but uh, Psalm 91 talks about being in the shelter of the Most High. You really get the sense that someone has experienced the, the very powerful leading of God through difficulty. We think of Moses leading the Hebrews through the wilderness right out of Egypt, up to the Hebrews had freed from slavery, and the, 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 the cloud that's guiding them by day and the pillar of fire by night, so maybe that fits. It talks about dwelling in tents, and so that kind of fits historically with the time period of, of Moses. So it could be him, but we're not totally sure. And the structure is important. So the first two verses are the personal faith of the author, whoever it is, maybe Moses. And so personal faith about God. Uh, verses 3 through 13 are the authors speaking directly to us. Now, one of the things that we miss in the translation of English uh, from Hebrew, because it's, you know, the oldest manuscripts are in Hebrew, uh, is that y you lose a nuance uh, in certain places. And here's one of the ones we lose. In English, when I talk to you, I could be talking to one person or a group of people, right? So how English is constructed, you, is, you use the same word for singular or plural. 
Uh, not so in some languages, not so in Greek, not so in Hebrew. And so here it's always uh, you in those, that middle section, you in the singular. And so people, when they're originally hearing this, it would have sounded very personal to them. It's about you specifically, whoever the hearer uh, or the reader happens to be. For he will deliver you, Matthew, from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you, Matthew, with his pinions, right? So it has that strong sense of kind of personal, uh, the personal touch. And the third section is the last three verses. And all of a sudden, the narration changes, and it's about God speaking to his people. In light of everything that's been said about all this protection and all these promises, all of a sudden, all of a sudden it's, it's God speaking directly to the people. So let's begin at verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So that's like the theme verse. So as we've been going through, quite often you'll see the first verse is like the theme. And the rest of the psalm will talk about how that theme is so. Right, so Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The rest of the psalm shows us how that is true. And the same thing is happening uh, here in Psalm 91. Okay? So he who dwells in the shelter, so it says he, but quite often in the psalms it will say he, but it's a representative figure, so it, it really is he or she, dwells in the shelter of the Most High. So this is someone who is close to God. You can't, you can't gain shelter from someone by being far away, for being distant. It says, you know, I was in Halifax, uh, last week, and I was out walking to do something one day, and it started to rain um, quite heavily, and I didn't have an umbrella, and so I noticed this big, beautiful maple tree, right? You know, the big, wide branches, and so I thought, you know, I'm going to go there because it was wet all around the pavement, but it was dry right under the tree, and so I kind of got there, and I was sheltered, but I had to be close to receive the benefit of that shelter, and so I think here this is talking about God, but without that closeness, that, that shelter isn't as real to the person, Verse 2, I will say to the Lord, my refuge in my fortress, my God in whom I trust. So here it's taken up another level. So refuge and fortress, my God in whom I trust. So you don't ask for God to be a fortress to you. You don't know him to be a fortress to you unless you are feeling under threat and there's some cause that battle is occurring. I need protection because I'm scared something is going on. Right? Um, William Gurnall, who was a Puritan writer, uh, Pick, picking up on this, on this theme about God as our fortress, he's got this great prayer. Castle me in the arms of your everlasting strength. Isn't that beautiful? Castle me, God, castle me in the arms of your everlasting strength. That's a good word. Now, verse 3, and this part starts the second section, which is direct, direct specifically to us. For he, God, will deliver you, save you from the snare of the fowler. Trapper, hunter, angler. And from the deadly pestilence. And so all of a sudden, we're going to start to hear about kind of protections that God's people are going to receive. Um, probably people aren't really worried about getting caught in a rabbit trap or something like that. So this is probably metaphorical language for evil, from evil in the world and even Satan himself, and from the deadly pestilence. Some of you would have grown up with the older King James Version of the Bible. Uh, very eloquent in its words. Uh, I love what it says here. It says, noisome pestilence. Noisome pestilence. When I hear the kids wrestling upstairs, I kind of want to yell out, cut out that noisome pestilence. <laughs> they wouldn't know what I was talking about, but it would be a very effective thing to say. Anyway, if that's the case there, how much higher, bigger, grander is the call for help here? Verse 4, he will cover you with his pinions, which means feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness, God's faithfulness, is a shield and buckler. And a buckler is a protecting wall, again, envisioning battle. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence, 
disease that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Now this is serious. Could you imagine a scenario that you might be in where thousands of people are dying all around you quickly? And we don't know what the threat is here. So what is his experience? Is it battle? Is it war? Is it some disease? We don't know. But I can only imagine that it would be very traumatic to see this many people around you. Um, when you read about like the Black Death and the bubonic plague, um, you know, in Europe and in, in, in England and other parts of the world, it's amazing how many people died, thousands of people died. Uh, one historian says that in some areas of, of England and Europe, up to 40% of people in a region or country died. 40%. So think of Toronto, approximately 3 million. Imagine 1.2 million people dying because of something within a couple of years. Now, a lot of us grew up in small town Ontario. Uh, so imagine a town with 10,000 people. All the people you need and everything to contribute to the community, to be strong and healthy. Imagine 4,000 dying. Wow. Now, when you trace back to verse 1, what is being told here? Well, the protection will occur. Why? Because you're dwelling closely under the shelter of the Most High. Verse 8, you will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Or um, the payback, the destruction of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High who is your refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. We're going to pause there for a second. Um, now, I just want to highlight that these two verses are part of the reason why a lot of people believe in guardian angels. Right? Guardian angels, an angel who kind of looks after someone. So this is part of the reason also Matthew 18 verse 10 talks about angels in heaven uh, being associated with children. And so that's there. But there's another reason why this passage is familiar. It's because it's quoted in the New Testament in the temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4 by Satan. I'm going to turn to that a little bit. So let's, let's, let's show what those, what those verses say. Next slide. Matthew chapter 4, the start of Jesus' public ministry. Then the devil took him, Jesus, to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands that will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So that's why this is partly familiar, because we're used to it in the Gospels of Jesus. Now, there's something I think we need to highlight and learn from that. Uh, first of all, is that Satan quotes the Bible. Okay? So let's say you're in a situation and someone, you know, say, I believe in God, and I, I can even quote a few Bible verses uh, out of context. And you think, oh, that, this person is the epitome of godliness. Not necessarily. Satan can quote the Bible, out of context, a lot of people could do that. James in the New Testament, James 2 verse 19 says that the demons believe that there is one God and that they shudder in his presence. Wow. And so we just need to be cautious here. Even Satan can quote scripture. Okay, the second thing that we learn from this story is that Jesus replies to that by quoting scripture. He says, as it is written, which is the ancient way of saying the Bible says... Jesus talks about the Bible in the Old Testament as the commands of God. There is a unity to it all. And so he counters Satan with Scripture. And sometimes as we're, if we're wrestling with something in spiritual warfare or whatever it happens to be or a difficulty in our lives, we think, oh, it's a truth battle between us and Satan. 
Uh, and that's what it is. It's a truth battle. It's not a strength battle. It's a truth battle, okay? And we, we sit under the truth of truth himself, who is Jesus. And so the devil's Achilles heel is biblical truth and prayer in Jesus' name. And so we need to follow the pattern of Jesus. And the third thing we should learn from this is simply what Jesus says. Don't test God. You want to take a couple passages out of context? I think you know what the teachings of God are more than the teachings of God. You know when they're to be applied more than God. No, he will act in his wisdom and his timing and according to his almighty goodness. Okay. So continuing. Verse 13, you will tread on the lion and the adder, snake. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Verse 14, and now here the tone changes, right? The narration changes. Now this is God speaking. Because he holds to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. Okay, so that first thing is we're going to hold fast to God in love, right? And God will deliver him because he knows his name. So I think of that passage in James 4, 8, right? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So this is what God is telling us to do. And it goes back to that verse 1. Closeness, dwelling in the shelter, under the wing. This is closeness. Verse 15, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, we should also note with the phrase long life, uh, this is sometimes uh, confusing to people because they think, well, you're blessed by God if you have a long life, uh, and, and maybe it's a curse from God if you have a short life. Not so. Not so. Technically, in the Hebrew, the word here is length of days. Uh, so it could refer to some of our days on earth and some of our days in eternity. Right? And we also need to be very careful to think that uh, it's over, overly simplistic and, and not look at what other passages of Scripture say, because other passages talk about hardship in life, which sometimes shortens life. My persecution is a, is a perfect example of that. Right? And also, if we think that only righteous people, only faithful people live a long time, on earth, what about Jesus? He lived 33 years on earth, which um, certainly was not a terribly, terribly long time. I was thinking about that. I have lived currently 13 years more than Jesus did on earth. Wow. Died when he was 33. If you are 60, you have lived 27 years longer than Jesus lived on earth. If you are 85, you have lived 52 years longer than Jesus lived on earth. Over double the time he spent on earth. Fascinating. William Gurnall, again, the Puritan writer, said, Our Savior never lost a battle, not even when he lost his life. Isn't that good? Our Savior never lost a battle, even when he lost his life. And so in this last verse, we are guaranteed the salvation of God for those who trust him. So this is the word of the Lord. All right, so having looked at the psalm, let's return to those two questions that we started with, right? What does the psalm teach us about God's protection in our lives? And what are we to make of it, right? When calamity comes into our lives and we read something like Psalm 91 and these promises sound hollow to us. And there's three question marks up there because people have really responded to these questions in kind of three dominant ways. And the first way that people respond is this. They note that this text does not mean that perfect perfection Sorry, perfect protection will always occur, even though there's a lot of that in the psalm. Why? Because when God starts to talk to his people in verse 15, he says, I will be with you in trouble. And so what that means is that, wait a second, if we're never going to experience trouble because of all of this, why would God say that? Well, he doesn't. John Stott, the theologian, says, divine deliverance does not always mean an escape from trouble, 
it means, sometimes means finding God in trouble. Divine deliverance does not always mean escape from trouble. It sometimes means finding God in trouble, and I think that's true. So if you look at Psalm 91 and you think that, oh, wait a second, this is a 100% slam dunk guarantee that I'll never have hardship, look again. The second way people respond is they say, it might be the case that verse 8 holds the interpretive key to the entire psalm. So what did verse 8 say? Well, that's the verse that says, you'll only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked or the destruction of the wicked. And people look at that, a variety of scholars, and say, wait a second, that's talking about judgment day. So a lot of this protection that we're going to experience, some of it might not experience in this life, but we will all experience it in Christ in heaven. And so, therefore, he's saying, wait a second, this is, this is about judgment day. And so none of these promises are going to be enjoyed by the wicked, but for God's people, they will all be enjoyed. And so there's a great preacher named Charles Spurgeon, and he saw, that's what he saw in this, and he said, you know what, because we know it's going to be so good, and all these things will fully and finally come true in the great beyond, and there'll be joy and feasting and celebration and worship and no tears and everything that is wonderful, from that point, we'll look back on our life, and we're going to see how... You know, all the difficulties that we experience somehow contributed to the increasing joy that we experience in the great beyond because we have been through all this garbage. Spurgeon says, the most crushing calamity can only shorten his journey and hasten him to his reward. Losses enrich him. Sickness is his medicine. Reproach is his honor. Death is his gain. No evil in the strict sense of the word can happen to him for everything is overruled for good. He lives where others die. And so that's his sense of what comes out of verse 8. Third, others have suggested that this psalm was really originally, in the original context, wasn't for people in general. It was specifically for when people were traveling on pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover or Feast of Tabernacles or whatever it happened to be. So the protection was really confined to that historical moment. And you think, okay, well, maybe that can make sense. Uh, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, maybe that's a reference to the temple and it would have had long shadows. That makes sense. It talks about living in tents, and pilgrims would have stayed in tents as they came to Jerusalem from the Decapolis or from anything else or wherever it happens to be. Um, talks about hitting your feet on stones and rocks, and before the Romans came, the roads were very crude, so maybe that makes sense. Possibly. But I would like to focus on a third, fourth option, rather. And it is quite simply that the Lord does battle for you. And he does battle for you, even when you can't see it, even when it sometimes seems invisible to your own eye. Right? We go through difficulties in life and things that happen. God is doing so many battles for us. He's winning so many victories on a daily basis. But because we cannot see him and perceive it necessarily, we think that it's actually not occurring. Illustration. Let's say there's a child, and this child, he's young, and he's walking through town. He probably shouldn't be walking through town by himself, but he is. He's walking through town, and he walks out in the street, and there's a big truck coming, and this is a moment of danger. And there's a neighborhood mom across the road, and she sees the truck coming, and so she steps out in there, and she waves down the truck, and he sees her and hits the brakes and swerves to the side. The boy doesn't even notice any of it, just gets onto the other side and keeps going. And then he starts walking down the street, and there's this firebrand down there. This person who is known throughout town to spew deception and lies and to scare people, and he preys on children. There's just something about his character. And all of a sudden, another friend of the family sees this boy walking towards this firebrand, and so goes and intercepts him and starts to talk to this man to distract his attention so the boy can go around, and he does so, and he's no worse for wear. 
Then he strolls into a park, and again, someone knew he was going to be there, so set up a lemonade stand and, and, and a little bench so he can rest his weary little legs, and he does so. And this person even clears off the path so he knows which one to take to go home. Now, in all of those situations, the child had no idea what was going on, all this stuff, all the ways that the other people were looking out for his well-being. Things were happening behind the scenes, and so it is with us. Think of this in the context of Psalm 91. Okay, verse 3, He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. How many times has God intervened for us to ward off some type of evil, to ward off some type of danger, but because we did not see it with our eyes, we assumed that nothing was happening. Verse 4, He will cover you with His pinions, feathers, and under His wings you will find refuge. How many times has God done that for us and we just, we just don't even know about it because we don't see it? Verse 5, you will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day. How many times have we had a decent sleep or we've had a good day and a friend has called and something has nurtured us and all these things happen and we think, oh, that's just chance. That's great. I hope tomorrow's like this day. It's because the Lord is doing battle for you in the invisible realm. You may think that you are fighting your own battles, but no. The Lord is doing battle for you. You may experience difficulty, but never defeat. Okay? You may experience difficulty, but never defeat. So what do we do? I'm going to kind of close this out by sharing three things that we should be able to do uh, based on God's instructions to us in the final verse. Okay? So the first is this, hold fast to God in love. And it might seem very simplistic. What is this? Hold fast to God in love. That's what God tells us to do. Now, when do you hold fast to someone? You hold fast to someone if you love them and you care about them. Let's say someone's going off on a long trip. And you're not going to see them for months. You, that extra hug is long, right? Because you're going to miss them. Or maybe they come back from a long trip. And, and so you really, really hug them tight. You're so happy to see them. That's what holding fast is. Now, we can't hold fast to God because we can't see him. It means in Scripture, sustained loving commitment. How we hold fast, dwell in the shelter of the Most High. It's sustained loving commitment. It's not occasional. It's not, you know, lukewarm. Is there evidence in you? of sustained loving commitment. And what does sustained loving commitment look like? Because God delivers those people. Second, <clears throat> know God's name. Now that's easy. We know God's name. The Lord, Yahweh, Jesus. You know, we said that's... <clears throat> but the thing is, is in the Bible, the word know sometimes has a bit of a deeper meaning and nuance. Okay? Um, I learned this when I was young. I was reading uh, the Bible uh, before I really had a great grasp of words, and it said, Adam knew his wife. Of course he knew his wife. But of course, in the Bible sometimes, knew or to know someone is a synonym for have sex with, right? So I was like, oh, goodness, that, that's quite different. So that's not what is meant here, but what does come out of that meaning is that there's a close intimacy with God. A close, close intimacy with God. That is what it means to know God and to know his name. Is there evidence that you know God intimately? And what does that intimacy look like in your relationship with God? Okay. Third, we call out to him. And this has to do with prayer, honest, honesty and prayer with God, uh, asking him to respond to the request for wisdom that you have. Do you talk at God or talk to God? And there's a difference. Do you talk at God 
Or do you talk to God? Sometimes we just roll off all this stuff and then we go about our life expecting him to say nothing or nothing to occur in our life at all that he might share with us. Maybe we're praying really desperately about a particular situation. God, I need wisdom and this or help or something. And you go out about your life and all of a sudden a new person comes into your life or you receive a new word of wisdom or there's some change in your situation somehow and you think, oh, isn't that lucky? Might God be communicating with you in a special way? And lastly and mostly, I just encourage you to remember that God does battle for you. You may experience difficulty, but never defeat. If he didn't, you would never stop weeping. If he didn't, you would experience trauma every single day. If he didn't, there would be calamity every hour of your life. There would be weeping and gnashing of teeth and spiritual death. Never a smile, never a laugh. Every drop of goodness that you have in your life is from above, James 1. And so just because you can't see it doesn't mean that God isn't doing battle for you. That, does that mean that you'll never experience trouble? No. But God is doing you battle, and he wins the victory. So as a final thought, I just want to share with you um, something I heard when I was out in Halifax. So uh, out there for the week, very, very, lots of history in that city, an old, older city, and at least by Canadian standards. And I was talking with someone at lunch one day, and they were sharing some information with me about the Halifax explosion. Remember that? Uh, 1917, so towards the end of the First World War. Horrific. I, I, until I talked to him, I didn't realize the extent of power and destruction of the Halifax explosion. So these ships are in the harbor, and two of them kind of skim together enough to create some sparks, and all of a sudden some stuff captures on fire, and people in the other boat realize, who are from another country, realize that this boat that's now caught fire is full of explosives, a lot of explosives. And so they're yelling at people to get away, but they speak a different language because they're from a different country. And so no one's responding. And so they jump in the harbor to swim to shore, but not the near shore, the far shore. They know that's how big the explosion is going to be. And so they, they start in their clothes. They're swimming to the far side of the harbor, knowing that this is going to explode. When they get there, they pull themselves up on the shore. And there's some families picnicking there with some little kids and everything else. And, and these, these men start yelling, you got to go, you got to go. And they're wet, but they look like crazy people. And they can't, they're not speaking a language that they understand. Say, like, what are we going to do? These people are going to die any moment now. This is going to explode. And so one of them has an idea. He runs up to one of the families and he grabs a baby and he starts to run. And guess what everyone else did? They ran after him. And he ran and he ran, but it was smart, right? And so he goes up over this hill and goes down to the other side. And by the time they get down to the other side, and the debris and the explosion and everything else comes across. But because they had reached the, the bottom part of that far side of the, of the hill, they were okay. There is much in our lives that we don't understand. How often is God sheltering us or saving us or protecting us and guiding us? And we have no idea that he's using other people and situations and events to do so, even confusing and difficult ones. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Friends, the Lord does battle for you. You may experience difficulty, but in Christ, never defeat. Amen.